The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Allion Herbicide from Bayer. Residual control that goes the distance. Cleaner, longer, Allion. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. The wine country fires in Napa, Sonoma, and Mendocino counties have yet to be completely extinguished. But the damage done to some of the finest wineries in the world is mounting. We run down the list of wineries hardest hit. The Santa Clara Water Agency voted to fund the Governor's Delta Tunnels project. Or did they? We unraveled the confusion as well as the deceptive spin coming out of the Capitol. The North American Free Trade Agreement talks have hit several snags, but one of the problems? Tomato growers in Florida. We'll tell you why. Did you know California agriculture is seeing more acreage devoted to coffee trees? Yeah, perhaps your next pumpkin spice latte might be from California-grown coffee beans. And yes, those beans grow on trees. All that, crop reports, and more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. All you have to do is step outside on a calm morning throughout Northern California, take a deep breath, and you'll quickly realize those wine country fires have not been extinguished. But there is good news. There is more containment to report at press time. The Redwood Valley Fire in Mendocino County, with 35,000 acres burned, is now 75% contained. The Atlas Fire in Napa and Sonoma County, south of Lake Berryessa, which encompassed 51,000 acres, is 83% contained. The Tubbs Fire near Calistoga, 36,000 acres, 91% contained. The Pocket Fire in the Geyserville area, 12,000 acres, 63% contained. And the Complex of Fires north of Glen Ellen near Highway 12, 54,000 acres, 80% contained. The total so far of fire-damaged wineries and vineyards in Napa, Sonoma, and Mendocino counties, approaching 30 properties. The ones suffering the most damage by fire, according to the San Jose Mercury News, include the Ah Winery in Glen Ellen, whose winery building and water system were destroyed. Backyard Vineyard and Winery in Redwood Valley burned to the ground, including losing the last five years of wine. Fry Vineyards in Redwood Valley lost its winery and bottling facility. Helena View Johnston Vineyards off Highway 128 in Calistoga reports everything was annihilated at their organic winery. Helena View Johnston Vineyards off Highway 128 in Calistoga reports everything was annihilated at their organic winery. Paradise Ridge Winery in Santa Rosa, as we reported last week, was completely destroyed by the Tubbs Fire. Oster Cellars in Redwood Valley was destroyed. Patland Estate Vineyards in Napa lost its estate and vineyards. The Polito Walkers Estate Vineyard in Napa was destroyed. Roy Estate in Napa was extensively damaged. Sagasia Vineyard in Napa reports significant fire damage. Signorello Estate Vineyards in the Stags Leap District of Napa was destroyed. Sill Family Vineyards in Napa, a total loss, according to the owner. Vin Rock in Napa reports a total loss, except for its wine cave. Adriana Diaz has been covering the wine country fires for CBS News, and she files this report from the ancient Oak Cellar wineries in Santa Rosa. California winemaking is a $58 billion industry, and now some of that could go up in smoke. As you can see here, a wildfire ripped through this winery, destroying this work truck and the vines behind it. We got a look at the destruction from the air in a California National Guard helicopter. I've never seen anything like this. It's- This literally looks like a bomb hit this neighborhood. The wind-driven firestorm burned entire neighborhoods to the ground. Just when you think the destruction is over, we pass over a hill 
and there are even more neighborhoods where houses have been completely decimated. Also destroyed, huge expanses of vineyards. This was the house? Ken Molhold Siebert yeah. and his wife owned the ancient Oak Cellars Winery in Santa Rosa. They not only lost the home his grandfather built, but part of their vineyard. And Molhold Siebert says the prime time to harvest the surviving grapes was last week, but closed roads kept him away from his property. They're a little past when I would like to have picked them. You start to see them uh, shrink a little bit, and that's a loss of weight, and that counts on the bottom line. Mohold Siebert could face not only a loss of income, but major expenses as well. Things like ripping up the soil and replacing irrigation systems. I would say there's probably 30 to 60 that have been heavily impacted. Louis Perdue is a wine industry analyst. Is that a large percentage of the amount of vineyards out here? Well, you have to realize there are somewhere close to 900 uh, wineries in, uh, in Napa and Sonoma. So it's serious, but it's not a killer blow uh, to the industry. If there's any silver lining here, it's that 90% of the grapes in Napa were already harvested before the fires broke out. The wine tourism industry, those are the tasting rooms, the hotels, the tour bus companies, want people to know that most of wine country is still open. That's CBS News reporter Adriana Diaz. Besides wineries, Northern California farmers and ranchers are beginning to assess the impact on their crops, livestock, land, and buildings. Most say it's going to take some time to gauge the complete impact. And we should point out that several grape growers in the Napa-Sonoma-Mendocino area say although some vineyards have burned, others have come through the fires with little or no damage. One farmer says vines singed by fire should recover once they're pruned this winter. Sunny Ramaswamy is director of the National Institute for Food and Agriculture. His agency oversees a program called EDEN, the Extension Disaster Education Network, which jumps into action before and after disasters like Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria. Where EDEN comes into play is really in multiple domains in the world of agriculture. Number one is obviously our farmers and livestock producers. Their crops, their livestock animals have been impacted. There are a number of animals that are dead for example. Besides helping to assess the agricultural damage, he says Eden also works with hard-hit communities. And many in rural communities are left homeless. They have no access. You know, stores are shut down. There's no food. There's no water and things like that. Eden is there to create the sort of the supply chain to bring in food and water and things like that. And why is Eden effective? We have extension in every county and borough and parish in America. And because of that reach, Eden is able to deploy its manpower and its resources very quickly in those communities. And since extension personnel are already part of their affected communities, people feel more confident about the information they provide. This is my neighbor. This is somebody that goes to church with me. This is a parent of a child who goes to school with my child. And so there's that level of trust that's inherent. Eden traces its origin back to the 1990s. We had really serious flooding on the Mississippi River. There was an incredible winter snowfall and things like that, and it all started melting and we had the flooding that took place from, you know, from North Dakota on down. He says many people were negatively affected and lives were lost. And at that time, what happened was the extension community that was there, that was getting all these phone calls from various individuals, deployed individually in each state. 
And then the machinery started churning in terms of the intellectual machinery that, you know, up and down along the Mississippi uh, watershed, every state that was along there had very similar problems. And then he adds, light bulbs went off. And some of these individuals in Iowa, in Illinois, in Missouri, etc., they came together and thought, you know, maybe there's a better way of doing this. Let's, why don't we go ahead and share in this information and maybe we can deploy our resources collectively. Nowadays, he says, Eden can help with things like assisting Florida citrus growers following the devastation of Hurricane Irma. As they're taking the inventory, they want to know how many trees are downed, how many of the fruit are no longer on a crop that's available to be picked. They're going to take an inventory of all of that. Along with that, they'll also take an inventory of the disease status, you know, from the citrus disease or maybe there's the citrus scab and things like that. Too. There are other th- issues that you've got on citrus as well. For more information, go online to eden.lsu.edu. The site is hosted by Louisiana State University. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California crop report. Alfalfa fields continue to be irrigated, cut, and baled. Sorghum fields are being harvested. Corn silage continues to be harvested. Cotton was being harvested for lint and seed. Black-eyed beans continue to be harvested. Late-season peaches, nectarines, and plums continue to be harvested. Some old stone fruit orchards are being pushed out. Soil amendments are being applied to some stone fruit orchards. Wine and table grape harvest is ongoing in the San Joaquin Valley. Napa and Sonoma County wildfires were impacting some field activities, and there's still some questions if the smoke from those fires could taint the unharvested grapes. Thompson seedless grapes are being rolled and picked up. Pear and pomegranate harvesting is ongoing. Persimmons are coloring up. Most citrus packing houses continue to get ready for the new navel orange season. Citrus orchards are being skirted and trimmed for the coming season. Some orange groves are being pushed out to make way for new plantings. Finger limes are being harvested. The olive crop continues to be harvested as well. The almond harvest continues to slow down across the state. Walnut and pistachio harvests are ongoing. In Fresno County, jalapenos continue to be harvested. Carrots were recovering from heat damage. Soil was prepped for planting organic garlic and onions. In Tulare County, certified producers are picking tomatoes, sweet corn, okra, cucumbers, squash, and peppers. Commercial plantings of yellow squash, eggplant, bell peppers, green chili peppers, as well as cucumbers are being harvested and shipped domestically. Fall vegetables were planted and developing well. Pumpkins are being prepped for harvest. Commercial plantings of yellow fall vegetables were developing well. Some early varieties are almost ready for harvest. Strawberries continue to grow. Pumpkin patches look very mature and should be ready for picking soon. Non-irrigated and foothill rangeland was reported to be in poor to very poor conditions. Supplemental feeding of cattle is ongoing. Cattle were moved down from higher elevation rangeland. Sheep were being moved to Imperial Valley. Northern California wildfires burned rangeland and forced evacuation of large animals. If you were to only read the press releases from the bowels of the state capitol, you'd think everything is just peachy with Governor Brown's proposed Delta Tunnels project, more properly known as California Water Fix. Take, for example, the comments relating to the Santa Clara Water District's votes this past week on whether to fund their portion of that $17 billion plan. The plan to build two giant tunnels under the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta to move water to Southern California. 
Governor Brown said after the Santa Clara Water District vote in a release, he stated, quote, the board's vote today is a major step forward for California water fix and ensures that Santa Clara will have the water it desperately needs. His secretary for natural resources, John Laird, released a statement that read in part, quote, we commend Santa Clara Water District's board members for taking action to stabilize their water supply for generations to come. Their seven to nothing vote adds to the momentum we've seen in the last two weeks as local agencies around the state have seen the value of WaterFix and formally voted to participate in the project. Well, there is one little problem with both of those spins on the vote. The tally by the Santa Clara Valley Water District actually had nothing to do with funding the current two-tunnel plan. Instead, that 7 to nothing vote was contingent upon a proposal they put forward to scrap the two-tunnel plan and pursue a new, less costly plan that included only one tunnel. Even though the governor's plan did get begrudging support from Southern California's Metropolitan Water District and the Kern County Water Agency recently, the Sacramento Bee reports that the project is still billions of dollars short of the funding it needs. As a result, Brown and his minions have said they're open to scaling down the project, perhaps a one-tunnel plan, to make up for the shortfall in funding. USDA's latest crop production report shows the extent of losses suffered by the nation's citrus industry, especially following hurricane damage in Florida. Irma rolled through and took a lot of a lot of the fruit off the trees. That was USDA chief economist Rob Johansson, who says the situation for citrus in the United States was already bad before Irma struck. We've had a general decline in orange production uh, in the United States consistently for the last six years. Most of that due to citrus screening in Florida. And he adds the declines are continuing. We do know that overall the production of oranges is going to be at about 4.34 million tons and that's down about 16 percent from last year. USDA's Florida state statistician Mark Hudson gives the specifics for the losses in his state. The all citrus production is down 21 percent to 54 million boxes. Our non-Valencia oranges is down 30 percent to 23 million boxes, and our Valencia crop is down 13%, or 31 million boxes. He says the effects of the hurricane can be clearly seen in the rate of fruit drop. Our drop is usually, we forecast it to be around about 25%, and now it's almost 48%, or the 48, 49 range. So the fruit drop, the firmer fruit population, is average double what it normally is because of the hurricane. The USDA chief economist says 1,900 groves were surveyed for the latest data. This year, NAS did get out and, and do a tree inventory survey as well as a limb count survey. Both of those occurred prior to the hurricanes. So that gave NAS a pretty good estimate of where uh, they thought production would be going into the year. Which he says means statisticians were able to compare estimates from before and after the hurricane. Meanwhile, he adds that the Department of Ag's crop report is expecting the lowest all-orange crop since 1963-64 when the citrus crop was affected by a freeze. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. State agencies and institutions that buy food would be encouraged to buy California-grown products under legislation signed by Governor Brown. The measure by Assemblymember Anna Caballero of Salinas will require state agencies buying agricultural products to purchase from California as long as the quality is equal and the price is within 5% of the lowest bid. School districts will have to buy California-grown if the price is equal. 
It's a race to the finish for California pumpkin growers whose crops have been slow to mature due to the spring rains and the summer heat. Virtually all of the state's pumpkins are marketed fresh for Halloween. Farmers say they've seen crop delays as a result of the weather. Although it's been a tough year because of that, growers say they're confident there will be plenty of California-grown jack-o'-lanterns on the market. Following Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Maria doubled down the destruction on Puerto Rican agriculture. The recovery effort will take years for many farmers. Puerto Rico Farm Bureau President Hector Cordero says crops throughout the island are a complete loss. In general, we lose almost 100% of our agriculture. All crops, plantains, bananas, papaya, coffee, all are uh, loose. Dairy represents the biggest sector of agriculture in Puerto Rico. Cordero, a dairy farmer himself, says dairy farmers are having trouble accessing their farms and getting their milk to processors. Currently, the industry is operating at a production level of about 50 percent. The biggest problem our dairy farmers have is the access to the farm, and it's impossible for the trucks from the dairy processor to get in the farmers. Other problem we have is we need access for the feed. We have three feed mills. They have uh, grain inventory, but they don't have the access to energy, so they can produce feed for the animals. He speculates that parts of rural Puerto Rico may be without electricity for up to a year as damages to power lines are repaired. While FEMA is helping the people of Puerto Rico, he says there needs to be more support for Puerto Rico agriculture. We need an action from Congress and from the USDA. We need people from USDA. The amount of employees that the USDA has in Puerto Rico is too small for the amount of necessity that we have in this moment. Michael Clements, Washington. Those of you with good memories may recall that last year at this time, Northern California and Sacramento in particular had received over four inches of rain. So far in October of 2017, not much, if any. And USDA's meteorologist Brad Rippey says we can expect more dry weather until the end of the month. We have the 8 to 14 day outlook and this covers the time period October 24th through the 30th, almost takes us through the end of the month. We are looking at a large part of the country expecting mild or above average temperatures during this time frame, particularly across the western half of the country. But with a a big ridge of high pressure expected to build there, we may see cooler conditions begin to settle across the eastern part of the country. Greatest likelihood of below normal temperatures from October 24th through the 30th will be across the interior southeast. Meanwhile, with the western ridge and an eastern trough developing late in the month, that means dry weather for a large part of the country. That means a lot of the country will be under a dry northwesterly flow from Canada. So everything from the Mississippi Valley westward don't look for much precipitation in late October. There could be, however, some heavy showers, precipitation mainly along the Atlantic seaboard, especially in the middle and northern Atlantic states westward through the lower Great Lakes region. However, if you want to believe the meteorologists at the Old Farmer's Almanac for 2018, they say November 2017 weather for most of California is going to be rather wet November 1st through the 9th. Let's hope so. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. 
As the NAFTA negotiations continue, throwing a monkey wrench into future negotiations is humidity. In particular, Florida's humidity. Florida has a lot of it. As a result, many of its growers can't use greenhouses, which better protect the vegetables, and they have severe problems with pests and diseases. As a result, tomato growers down in Florida are especially upset at the number and prices of Mexican tomatoes that make it into the United States, thanks to the NAFTA agreement. When you buy an industrial Florida tomato, the Washington Post reports, it's been grown outdoors in a field, harvested green, and ripened near the grocery store with ethylene gas. Mexican tomatoes, on the other hand, are largely vine-ripened and grown in greenhouses, which are subsidized by the Mexican government. Florida growers say these aren't the only things separating them from the Mexican competition. Farm workers' wages in the United States are far higher, as is the cost of meeting government regulations. As a result, Florida tomato growers are demanding tougher anti-dumping measures, an idea that's already been soundly rejected by the Mexican government. However, the rest of America's farmers, including California's, are generally strongly pro-NAFTA and whose livelihoods are on the line if the negotiations falter. Between 1993, the year before NAFTA went into effect, and 2016, U.S. agricultural exports to Canada and Mexico shot up by more than 400% from $8.9 billion to $38 billion. Mexico and Canada are now the principal foreign markets for such U.S. commodities as corn and soybeans, apples, and high-fructose corn syrup. Those benefits have generated strong support for the trade agreement among farmers and ranchers over the years, and a lot of anxiety at the prospect that it could all come to an end. With more on the NAFTA negotiations, here's the USDA's Gary Crawford. After four NAFTA negotiating rounds, 22 days total. Frankly, I am disappointed by the resistance to change from our negotiating partners on both fronts. U.S. Trade Representative Ambassador Robert Lighthizer at the conclusion of round four Tuesday in Arlington, Virginia. That also seemed to be the general message from Canada and Mexico as well. Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Friedland said that the idea of redoing NAFTA is to give wins for all three countries. But that cannot be achieved with a winner-take-all mindset. Lighthizer said the U.S. has two objectives. One, modernize NAFTA. Two, cut what he says is the $500 billion trade deficit NAFTA is causing for the U.S. And he told reporters, We have seen no indication that our partners are willing to make any changes that will result in a reduction in these huge trade deficits. Or as Mexico's Trade Secretary Guajardo put it, We still have a lot of work to do. Next round, November 17th through the 21st, Mexico City. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. The Sacramento Valley rice harvest is progressing well, aided by recent warm temperatures. And rice grower Sandy Den of Snow Goose Farms in Willows says as this harvest gets complete, some more feathered friends are coming back to help out. The skies are not completely blue and sunny this time of year, and it's due to fires that we have surrounding the Sacramento Valley, and we certainly have positive thoughts and hopes for those people whose lives are are at risk right now and their homes at risk. But in the meantime, we are here harvesting rice. It's a beautiful time of the year with the cool mornings and evenings. Um, We're visited with all sorts of wildlife that come in to enjoy the harvest with us. 
uh, mainly birds, and they don't really do us any harm. They're, they're uh, actually our little helpers in getting rid of rice straw after the harvest is complete. And those people who are going to decompose their rice straw, the minute you put water on it, it's sort of like sending a, a uh, engraved invitation to especially the ducks and geese in the area. It's, it's rewarding. You've got your crop off and in the barn and the, now the wildlife takes over and cleans up the leftover grain and helps mash the straw down into the dirt. It, it's just rewarding all the way around. The California Rice Commission says about 6 million ducks and geese spend the winter in the 500,000 acres of rice fields, as well as the 75,000 acres of wetlands in the Sacramento Valley. Back in the 30s and 40s, music was different from today. Grocery shopping, much different than today. Stores did all the work for you. You just told them what you wanted, maybe not quite like this scene, in which classic comedian W.C. Fields, store owner... Morning, Mr. Fitzmiller. ...encounters store customer... I want 10 pounds of kumquats, and I'm in a hurry. Kumquats. Uh, how do you spell it? C-U-M-Q-U-A-T-S. Oh, yeah. C-U-M... Q-U-A-T-S. Quats. Quats. Two quats? No, one quat. <laughs> in those days, uh, you told the store folks what you wanted. They pulled the products from the shelves, bagged them, and either gave them to you at the store or delivered them. Then came the supermarket, and we were pretty much on our own. However, with the Internet and mobile phone technology, it's possible we could be going back to the past with online grocery shopping, click and collect, and home delivery. Uh, many other types of retailers are adding these systems, e-commerce systems, growing those types of sales, and many people are taking advantage of that. But in the grocery business... There's not a lot of inroads in terms of e-commerce into the grocery sector. Mark Matthews with the National Retail Federation, and indeed the percentage of grocery sales by some sort of e-commerce is almost microscopic. Yeah, it's tiny. Agriculture Department research economist Abby Okrent says at last count, e-commerce grocery and beverage sales were only one-fourth of one percent of all the grocery sales in this country. A couple of possible reasons. First, Abby says it's not cheap or easy for a food store or chain to offer e-commerce choices for consumers. There are definitely large fixed costs involved with setting up an e-commerce division. And another private retail researcher, Greg Busick, told reporters at a National Retail Federation briefing that before food stores jump into this with both feet, they have to ask a lot of bottom line questions. Where do I find the extra labor to handle that part? How do I change my business, lower my labor costs in one area so that I can do the stuff that my consumers want? But how many consumers actually want it? The Retail Federation survey shows 86% of U.S. consumers still buying most of their groceries by going to the store, even when the store does offer online ordering. We asked Abby Okrent, why has this been slow to catch on with shoppers? She says, survey show shoppers are afraid of spoilage of perishable items and those kinds of issues when they order online, but also... Food is sensory, you know, and so when you do it online, it takes away all that touch-feel, smell of the food. And the newer, larger stores have added many things to attract people into their stores. Restaurants, cooking demonstrations, tastings of foods and beverages, and evidently that strategy is working at least so far. You may remember at the end of August, Amazon merged with Whole Foods, setting up all kinds of possible ways for customers to buy products. Abby says it's a big experiment. And I, I, I kind of wonder how that's all going to work out. Will it revolutionize grocery buying and selling, or will it flop? We'll see. How about my oh dear, we're back to that again. This is Gary Comquat, uh, I mean Crawford, reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. 
Chronic problems in finding and hiring qualified people are continuing on California's farms and ranches. That according to a survey released recently by the California Farm Bureau Federation. The informal survey showed more than half of responding farmers have experienced employee shortages this year. The figure was higher among farmers who employ people on a seasonal basis. Nearly 70% have seen shortages despite higher wages and other actions. And those ag problems persist here in Sacramento County as well. That, according to Bill Bird, he's the executive director of the Sacramento County Farm Bureau Federation. And the numbers are pretty stark. We've heard from a number of businesses that employ seasonal labor that they can find about 80% of what they need. Uh, but the other 20% has been tricky, and the numbers have been particularly bad this year. And there was one example of one grower that was not able to harvest all the fruit trees that were on this particular plot of land because they didn't have the numbers of people needed to harvest those trees. So some of that fruit did go to waste. This is something new that is that is popping up now, and it's becoming a problem. What particular sectors of agriculture in Sacramento County are being hardest hit by the labor shortages? According to the reports that I've received, dairy has been very hard hit, uh, not just in uh, or in Sacramento County and across the rest of California. You're again saying uh, that, that the, uh, the the dairy industry sen- sen- simply cannot get the numbers of people to milk a cow. And it all comes down to not all jobs are equal when it comes to agriculture. Some agricultural jobs pay more than others. So if you have, let's say, five people who are working in seasonal agriculture and they can make $13 an hour working in dairy or they can make $17 an hour trimming fruit trees, guess where they're going to go? They're going to take the fruit tree job because they're going to make more money. And you just don't have the numbers of people to uh, replace those losses so that some sectors are definitely feeling the pain. Is there any solutions proposed by the people you talk to? A big problem is a rhetor- the rhetoric that is coming out of Washington, D.C. and from the office of President Donald Trump. Um, it is causing a lot of fear among seasonal workers. Uh, they are hearing a lot of things on Spanish radio that aren't necessarily true, but they're still hearing it. For example, I'll give you one opinion. In th- this was uh, during the wine country fires uh, in Sonoma County. There were reports from Spanish radio uh, that all of the evacuation centers, they were being asked for proof of citizenship. That wasn't true. It was the report was wrong, but it did get around to certain segments of the population and they just didn't show up to an evacuation center, even though they needed the help. And that's the kind of problem that we're finding is that there is a hysteria among some in the seasonal agriculture industry that if they make too much noise, they may show up at work on the wrong day, they're going to be arrested and deported. And that's a serious threat, a serious fear, and it's having an impact on our industry, no doubt about it. That latest California Farm Bureau survey shows that the federal government needs to move rapidly towards allowing a legal immigrant workforce in the United States to help guarantee that future immigrants who desire to work in American agriculture will be allowed entry. If rodents are an issue around your chicken coops, don't rely on the chickens alone to control that infestation. Even though chickens will eat mice, UC and CDFA certified poultry health inspector Cherie Sintes-Glover says letting chickens alone attempt to control your mouse problem may present serious health issues for the people around the chickens. Sanitation 
is very important, especially when it comes to chickens and mice um, and rodents that could be in your coop. Uh, the fact is that chickens, you know, chickens and mice kind of coexist to a certain degree. And in fact, what's what's interesting is that chickens will actually attack mice if they do see them in a coop. Um, so you could you could claim that chickens uh, will help eradicate your your mouse or rodent population. Um, but what Mice are to chickens are, are a type of vector, so they're going to carry uh, different types of diseases that can be transferable to humans um, as they make their way through the coop, you know, looking for feed and for eggs. Um, and so it's important to control those, control those with traps or control those with um, how you design your chicken coop, perhaps, you know, cleaning the coop on a regular basis. It's tough because chickens do scratch a lot. They're going to scratch their feed throughout their their coop environment and their chicken yard, um, but if you do your best to keep it uh, picked up, it will it will help keep down the numbers of rodents. If rodents are a problem, the University of California recommends construction of chicken coops with materials composed of hard surfaces, concrete, brick, or galvanized sheets, or even 24-gauge hardware cloth. That time of year is fast approaching, Halloween, and that means all sorts of little ghouls and goblins roaming around trick-or-treating perhaps haunting a seasonal party or two. There's been an increased emphasis in recent years on making trick-or-treat activities safe for children. But as Ivalese Cologne of North Carolina Cooperative Extension notes, there is also a growing health and nutrition emphasis on trick-or-treating as well. In fact, one of the things that we recommend is maybe you want to skip the candy. And many parents are thinking that same way for food safety and health reasons to avoid giving children candy and goodies for trick-or-treat, instead offering alternatives. For example, if food is given out instead of sweets, some parents opt to give healthier snacks instead, like fresh fruit. But Cologne says parents should remember... It's very important to wash those fruits. You just need cool water and rinse them and rinse them well and dry them and also look for holes or punctures in those fruits. And a good thing it will be if you cut them open to just make sure there's nothing there. Some parents are skipping handing out food altogether instead offering goodies of a different sort to trick-or-treaters. For example, maybe you want to do a party for your kids' friends and then do have party favors. Pencils, erasers, glow-in-the-dark things, coloring books, stickers, trading cards. Those things are really good because most of the kids don't get those things. Everybody gets candy and something to eat. But having things that are not expensive, you can buy them at any dollar store that is around the community. Then it will attract the kids and they will enjoy it better for a longer time. Along those same lines, there are other items that are growing in popularity as Halloween treats for kids of all ages. People like handing out coupons, maybe discount cards for different places, and that way then the children can enjoy it better. It's something that it could be a lasting thing because they can use those coupons most of the time for a longer period of time than just what the candy will last at home, that is maybe a few days. Cologne adds that parents are finding out that in some cases, offering non-candy alternatives for Halloween is safer for children and more cost-effective for parents. So a lot of people are trying to do other alternatives. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. If you've seen the line of cars around any Dutch Brothers or Starbucks, you know coffee is very popular now. 
But did you know coffee is grown here in California? That's right. There are something like 16 coffee growers growing coffee commercially from as far south as Oceanside near San Diego to as far north as Morro Bay up near San Luis Obispo. And they're growing something like 14,000 trees here in the Golden State. And did you know that there is a coffee research center at UC Davis? It's called the UC Davis Coffee Center, and Professor Bill Riston, part of the UCD Coffee Center, has more. Coffee is one of the most widely consumed beverages in the world, and UC Davis is already world famous for its wine and its beer programs. But for historical reasons, there hasn't been much emphasis on coffee. One of the nice things about this course is it really served as a catalyst for creating the UC Davis Coffee Center, where our goal is to start a upper division graduate level curriculum focused on coffee that's very analogous to the wine program, and also to use the coffee center to do cutting edge research in the area of coffee. We want to do for coffee what UC Davis has already done for wine and beer. How popular is coffee? Gary Crawford with the USDA files this report. With the incredible growth and spread of coffee shops around the country, more and more of us are drinking more and more coffee. So won't you join me now? It's time to retake a cup of coffee. It's called a coffee break. Yes, specialty coffees, high-quality coffees are catching the uh, interest of consumers in an increased way. So much so that we seem willing to pay a lot more for our coffee, at least at the big-name coffee shops. I'm Gary Crawford, and coming up on this edition of Agriculture USA, we're brewing up a cup of coffee facts and fancies. It's called the Coffee Break. You've got 2,000 green coffee beans in every pound of coffee. Well, that's David Robinson, a coffee grower from Tanzania in Africa. He has joined with other small producers to raise high-quality Arabica coffee. Some might consider it and other coffees high-priced as well, but he says an incredible amount of work goes into that coffee. First, as you heard, in every pound, 2,000 green coffee beans. Each of those beans had to be picked by hand and go through an extensive series of processes processes uh, transported on uh, ox cart from the fields, trucks to the curing factory, train to the coast, ship to the U.S. It's a very labor-intensive, distant uh, product. Which explains some of the pricing of a pound of coffee and, of course, if you buy it at a specialty coffee shop. You're paying for real estate, you're paying for ambiance, you're paying for marketing. It's a quality-of-life decision and people seem to enjoy it. So we, we credit Starbucks with enhancing people's recognition of quality coffee and having people have a willingness to pay more for it. 12 to $15 a pound, sometimes more. And at some shops, one cup can run you 4 to $6. And now, uh, uh, prepare for a time travel shock. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the Java Jive and it loves me. Shoot me a pot and I'll pour me a shot. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Now, in 1940, when this song was a hit, it might have played on a jukebox in this little coffee shop, and you might have heard this exchange. I want a cup of coffee. Okay, Mr. Black. Just a cup of coffee. That will be uh, 20 cents, please. 20 cents for two cups of coffee, 10 cents a cup, jump in Java. 
Batman. Look what we're paying today, you may say. And so you think coffee prices are outrageous today, even to buy a pound of coffee to brew at home? But be prepared to be a little surprised at the results of a little study done by Agriculture Department analyst Anne-Marie Coons. She compared the current average price of a 12-ounce cup of coffee made at home to the price when this song was a hit. 1987. Using the average cost of a pound of coffee, all types, all prices, cost for us to brew a cup of coffee at home in 1987, 12.2 cents. Cost today, yeah, 19.1 cents, so about 7 cents higher. But then if we take 1987 and adjust that cost for inflation... It brings it up to 26.3 cents. So actually, today's cup of coffee costs about 7 cents less than 30 years ago. But of course, Anne-Marie was using the average retail price of a pound of ground coffee, the average of the cheap coffees and the super expensives. And those prices over the years are all over the map. In November 2012, the average pound of coffee was selling for over $6. The average this year, about 4 However, some people do pay a lot more. We caught up with another coffee grower import and expert, Arondo Holmes, at a farmer's market. He sells his bags of coffee grown on his farm in Honduras, roasted here locally by him for about 12 to $13 a pound. But no matter what you pay, you do want to get the best quality out of that coffee. And Arondo gave us some advice on how to get the best taste for your coffee dollars first. Buy the coffee like you're buying bread. Get just enough for a week. But if you've got to have extra reserve coffee... Because coffee people don't like to run out of coffee. Freeze it. In an airtight container, it'll stay in good condition for how long? Three months. But unfrozen, just left in the bag, Arondo Home says the coffee will be at peak flavor for only about three days after it's roasted. So you, after three days, you've got it as good as it's going to get. And a week after that, it's going to drop off. Arondo says if you buy a pound of coffee any kind, you can help preserve the good quality by doing whatever you can to keep the air away from it. Coffee reacts to oxygen and the result over time is less quality. So once you open that bag and use some of it, put the rest in an airtight container immediately. And this has been Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It's called the Coffee Break. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour, heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.